0: first try to plan ahead and second sometimes things happen when traveling in big cities try to stay calm and fall back on your emergency plan Hello, everybody,
1: and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden, joined again this week by my co-host, Jessica Chapman. Jessica, thank you for being with us this week. I'm so excited to see your face on a Zoom call.
2: Oh, it's great to see you too, Jeremy, and to be here as well.
1: Yeah, you know, we're here one month into summer 2021. Uh, Jessica, do you have any summer travel plans or have you been able to travel at all so far this summer?
2: I've had some travel, of course, uh, having to be very careful still with COVID being with us. But I've had a little bit. I've been fortunate.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's a weird summer for travel. We are certainly looking at a different summer travel schedule than we saw last year. You know, but we are seeing rising uh, infection rates. The Delta variant causing some concerns across the country. At the same time, we are approaching 50% vaccination rate here in the United States. So kind of a muddled picture about travel. The CDC does say that people who are fully vaccinated can travel safely and that the Currently, approved vaccinations do seem to be effective uh, against the existing variants. So we do expect to see some travel this summer. Of course, we recommend checking the CDC for the latest recommendations if you are thinking about taking a trip. But Jessica, that brought to mind a very recent conversation we had here on Connecting ALS about traveling with ALS.
2: Yeah, as more people are becoming vaccinated and more people are traveling and COVID, of course, still being very much with us, we know that people living with ALS are a greater risk of experiencing severe symptoms of COVID. And so therefore, we thought this was a really great time to revisit an episode that you and Mike had done back in February, addressing traveling living while living with ALS. So, of course, you had some great conversations with four different speakers, Jeremy Ventress, who spoke about his experience traveling with ALS and some of the challenges he's faced, Heather Ainsley from Paralyzed Veterans of America, who spoke about the work and advocacy that her group has been doing when related to mobility challenges that people experience when they're flying the airways. And then of course, she spoke with Claire Durrett from TM Gleason, recent changes around mask requirements and how that's impacting those who are living with ALS using air travel and public transportation. And of course, we know that even today, during this month of July, that masks are still required on many public transportation. So still a very timely topic. And then last, Miriam Elgus Goldman of Accessible Go, a really great website that is there for people who have mobility challenges and are looking to make their travel as accessible as possible.
1: Yeah, it was a really great conversation. So with that in mind, why don't we hear from uh, the folks who know way more than you and I do about these issues?
0: Question one. Traveling with ALS can be very exciting because the person living with ALS gets to be out in the community and can have new and exhilarating experiences. However, there can be challenges. Such has been the experience for me. I have been blessed to have many experiences traveling while living with AOS. I have made multiple cross-country road trips in our accessible and flown in commercial airplanes, and have even traveled across the country by train. I have wandered the busy streets of New York City, Chicago in Washington, D.C. and explored outback towns with populations of less than 10,000 people both before and after getting tracheostomized. Early in my ALS journey, when I wasn't tracheostomized, traveling was quite a bit easier. I didn't need as much equipment, and I was slightly more mobile than I am now. In those days, traveling by myself was a breeze mainly because my power wheelchair was lighter and less bulky and fit better on airplanes. Now, I must plan carefully to ensure I have all of the equipment and accessories needed to sustain me. Unfortunately, there have been times when I overlooked essential details, which made traveling uncomfortable and even dangerous at times. I have learned some of my lessons the hard way, in particular when my wife oldest daughter, and I took a trip to Orlando for my doctoral residency. It seemed like everything was going wrong. After we boarded our flight and I was situating my things, I realized that I forgot to bring a charging cord for my ventilator. Because of the type of ventilator I had at the time, I could only have my ventilator on when connected to my power wheelchair. The plane was already taking off and I hoped and prayed that I could complete the four-hour trip without being connected to my ventilator. While I was physically able to make the flight, this caused a lot of anxiety and fear, made my trip uncomfortable, and left me feeling hypoxic for a couple of days after each flight. I have learned many of my lessons the hard way. First, I follow a checklist to ensure I have all of the equipment. Accessories and supplies I need to maintain my tracheostomy, feeding tube, wheelchair, and such. I also make sure that each of the hotels and accommodations is wheelchair accessible. I try to plan my activities and events to ensure the venues and activities I will be doing are wheelchair accessible. These activities include ensuring the transportation to and from the airport and each venue destination is accessible. While I try to fit in as many activities as I can into a trip, I also try to space them out to allow more time for travel and getting things situated and organized. Not overcrowding my schedule has been important for our family trips since we juggle having six children and me being in a wheelchair. Everything takes longer for us. Money is another consideration. To what extent can I afford the trip while still be able to afford my ongoing care family's needs? Team Gleason generously paid for our big once-in-a-lifetime trip to Disney World. I would recommend people tap into those resources for expensive trips to remain engaged with adventure and community. Another consideration especially for people living with ALS who have small children, is whether you need another person to travel with you to either help with the children or help with caregiving. My wife and I have felt the relief of having an extra person with us to help with our toddlers. We have also experienced the challenges of traveling alone. On those trips, my wife would literally have to run after one little boy with another little boy in her arms. This made those trips more difficult and stressful. Sometimes things happen when traveling in big cities. Try to stay calm and fall back on your emergency plan.
1: Thanks again, Jeremy, for sharing your time with us. We hope you're listening and couldn't be more grateful for you taking the time out of your day to share your experiences traveling. Next up, we wanted to get a sense of uh, some changes that were going on and some policy changes in terms of access to air travel in particular. So uh, you and I had an opportunity, to Mike, to talk to Heather Ansley from Paralyzed Veterans of America to hear about some of the work that they're doing on access to air travel.
3: The folks over at PVA are great, and, and Heather is no exception. She really had some good insight on this. Let's listen back now. We're joined today by Heather Ansley, the Associate Executive Director of Government Relations with Paralyzed Veterans of America. Welcome, Heather, and thanks for being with us on Connecting ALS.
4: Well, thank you. We appreciate the opportunity to join you today.
3: We've been looking forward to talking to you, and we wanted to discuss a topic that has been in the news lately and impacts people with mobility challenges, including many within the ALS community. And I'm talking about air travel. American Airlines made headlines when they implemented and then quickly reversed a policy that put a weight limit of 300 pounds on wheelchairs for certain flights. That policy has been reversed, but it speaks to the issue of travel difficulty and accessibility that many individuals and families with mobility challenges do face. Is this something, Heather, that you focus on at the PBA?
4: Uh, yes, it's something that we spend a very large amount of time on. PVA members are all veterans with spinal cord injuries or disorders, including MS and ALS. Once we got into this, we we contacted American Airlines, we contacted the Department of Transportation, we talked to our champions on Capitol Hill and just expressed real concerns with how um, this policy had come about, uh, what it was based on, and also looking at some of the other airlines that flew uh, the same aircraft but didn't seem to be having the same policy all led us to believe that this was something that could be reversed, that could be addressed once the organization looked at it differently. And, you know, we were glad that ultimately American did come to the decision that they had, you know, misinterpreted, we'll say, how you could have weight limits with aircraft and that really, uh, you know, there were different ways to look at this that would still ensure safety, but also ensure uh, greater access for individuals who use particularly powered mobility devices, which which do tend to have a, a heavy weight associated with them.
3: Right. And it's an unfortunate that the conversations had to be had at all that American and, and any other airline would even consider putting a policy like this in place. But it's impressive the way that that you and other organizations and individuals and advocates came together to so quickly say, hey, this needs to change. This can't happen. The FAA reports that personal wheelchairs of all kinds uh, are damaged about 25 to 30 times a day on domestic flights, which of course impacts quality of life for those individuals and uh, creates the hassle of of working with airlines to cover the cost of expensive repairs. We've been watching cabin space on airlines shrink uh, for decades to add more standard seating and and build what major airlines would refer to as efficiencies. But that often comes at the expense of accessibility. Organizations like yours in DC, Heather, as well as the ALS Association, are out there advocating to make flights and travel in general safer and more accessible for all. Has there been any significant progress outside of this made on that front in the last couple of years?
4: So we have have really been uh, pushing at all levels uh, to try to increase access. Um, As you mentioned, the way in which air travel has been conducted of late is have to make sure that an airline can have as many individuals as possible in a particular aircraft and to fly that aircraft as many times a day as they can Mm -hmm. um, to ensure uh, profit. Uh, for those carriers. And of course, we need airlines to be successful so that we can get where we all want to go. However, many times those policies are at the expense of people with disabilities, particularly those for whom space is often the commodity that's needed to ensure safe access. PBA has worked extensively with with our partners, including the ALS Association, to really advocate on Capitol Hill and try to get lawmakers to better understand the situation that passengers with disabilities, particularly those who encounter mobility impairments, face when they're traveling. I think sometimes that just the general angst that many travelers have about the conditions they experience in air travel sometimes overrides the conversation about what travelers with disabilities, particularly those who who use wheelchairs on on a permanent basis, do do encounter. Mm. We did see in the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2018, which was the last time the FAA was reauthorized, did include an entire title on disability, including the establishment of an advisory committee on the needs of passengers with disabilities at the Department of Transportation, uh, the need for the department to work on a bill of rights for passengers with disabilities, requirements to re-examine regulations that look at training, training, and other aspects of, of air travel. And that was, we felt like a recognition that, you know, the issues of air travel for people with disabilities have actually not improved in recent years and decades. And in fact, we would argue have gotten worse, mm. uh, which is, is not something typically when we talk about access these days, t- typically access has gotten better, you know, with the advent of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which turned 30 years old this year. But air travel is one of those places where, as I like to say, when you get on an airplane, it's like going back in time to 1985 from an access perspective. Because Mm -hmm. there just is no access with laboratories. Many times the in-flight entertainment has accessibility issues. There's certainly no space for a wheelchair on board or for... Seating close to the to the cabin door, unless you're uh, able uh, to pay a, a price, you know, for for those close seats. And so it's really just an interesting contrast when you look at air travel versus uh, a city bus or uh, you know Amtrak, other other modes of transportation. Air travel really is its own unique animal. And in fact, many of our members and other people with disabilities would rather drive across the country just to avoid an air travel trip because of concerns about a damaged wheelchair or, quite frankly, injury to themselves in the process of being transferred on and off the aircraft.
1: What are the fights ahead? Where do you see these uh, conversations around accessibility and air travel going in the next 12 months uh, and then beyond?
4: Well, we have had legislation pending on Capitol Hill that we understand will be reintroduced in 2021, the Air Carrier Access Amendments Act. And this legislation would make some changes that we think are really key to actually addressing the problem. Number one is we need accessibility standards for aircraft. We have them for trains and buses and other modes of transportation, but we don't for airplanes. And there are very, very, very few accessibility requirements on aircraft. And so that's number one. We feel like we simply must have that mode of transportation come under the same types of design requirements that we see other places, even though air travel is not under the Americans with Disabilities Act. One of the other things we think is very important is enforcement. Right now, the enforcement is administrative and an individual can file a complaint with the airline. They can file a complaint with the Department of Transportation, but there aren't real sticks. You know, you you get a letter that basically says, Uh, yes, you're right, we uh, violated your rights, uh, violated the Air Carrier Access Act, and we're going to send a letter to this airline and and tell them basically they shouldn't do this again. And we feel like uh, instead we need to have a private right of action under this law that would allow individuals who had their rights violated be able to to go to court um, and also be able to do systemic litigation versus just individual cases because as we've seen in the context again of the americans with disabilities act that systemic litigation is many times what moves an industry forward
3: it sounds like promising legislation heather and we hope to see that come to fruition here and be introduced in the next year my last question for you thinking about the population served by pva as well as the als association what sort of advice do you have for folks who are needing to travel right now? I understand staying safe and adhering to guidelines during the pandemic should be a priority. But for those who must travel for uh, personal or medical reasons, is it best to to get in touch with the airline directly and ask questions to confirm accommodations that way?
4: Yes, but as much as you can plan ahead, uh, that really is your best bet. So reaching out to your airline Ahead of time, letting them know what your needs are, Uh, if you're traveling, particularly with a power wheelchair, making sure that that wheelchair can be loaded onto the aircraft. Even with the changes, uh, you know, that we discussed about American at the top of the show, there are still aircraft that are that are just simply too small to accommodate uh, large power wheelchairs. So as much information as can be provided ahead of time, that allows the airline to maybe put uh, an individual on a flight that's on a bigger plane that leaves, you know, earlier in the day, or maybe even later in the day, but to ensure that the travel is able to occur. And also to let the airline know what type of assistance that you'll need getting on and off the aircraft. And then to be uh, willing and able to advocate for that assistance on the day of travel. Unfortunately, we know, Uh, Many times people uh, do provide this information and it doesn't necessarily make it uh, to those who are providing you with assistance, but do continue to advocate for that. And if you find that you have troubles at the airport with regard to accommodations, you can always ask to speak to the airline's complaint resolution officer, and that's Mm -hmm. called a CRO. And a CRO is somebody who works for the airline who's been specifically trained In the rights and responsibilities of passengers with disabilities, they are required to be on call if the airline is flying. And you can always ask to speak to one of those individuals as the people you're working with at the gate or maybe even on the flight, uh, the flight crew uh, may not be as familiar with uh, the the rights and responsibilities under those laws. And and sometimes the CRO can step in and, and help to get those accommodations addressed. So, so we certainly do encourage folks to plan ahead as much as they possibly can, but also just to be prepared on the day of travel that, you know, they, they need to advocate uh, for what they need to make that trip safely.
1: So, Heather, it occurs to me as you're laying out some of those challenges that exist, all the different components parts of travel that maybe we take for granted as we're we're going through them, Um, what are some other aspects of of air travel that folks need to know about as they're thinking about trips they may take uh, this calendar year?
4: Well, one thing that's really important uh, for listeners who may use service animals is to know that the Department of Transportation has released some new regulations, and they will change the definition of a service animal so that the, the a service animal will be a dog. No other types of animals will be allowed to serve as a service animal. They will also no longer consider emotional support animals to be service animals, In addition, they are allowing airlines to require individuals that are traveling with a service animal to provide them with a form attesting to that animal's health, behavior and training. And that Mm -hmm. would be for all service animal users. So it's really important to check with the airline you're flying with to make sure that if you are flying with a service animal, you know what that airline is requesting uh, that you provide to them, and also that you're you're meeting the requirements that they've set forth. You also, they're not allowing large service animals, so your animal has to fit on your lap or in the foot space around your foot. Um, so there's just some things to consider that we want to make sure folks are aware of so that they can uh, ask questions ahead of time and evaluate their situation prior to showing up at the airport on the day of travel. Uh, So there's lots of information available on the DOT website. And like I said, the best place to check is your airline's website because there are many, many uh, of the policies that airlines can choose to enforce or not. And so some airlines may have slightly different policies. And so you'll want to make sure that you're familiar with your airline's requirements before day of travel.
3: That's good advice, Heather. Good to know. And I'm clearly planning ahead, important asking those questions uh, in advance is uh, is key. So thanks for laying that out there. Well, thanks so much at this in-depth look at uh, air travel for those living with disabilities, Heather. We really appreciate your time today and and, uh, the walkthrough of this important topic.
4: Well, we are always pleased to talk about improving access to air travel and Paralyzed Veterans of America appreciates the opportunity to talk with uh, the ALS Association and your members and know that together we can improve this situation for all people with disabilities. So thank you very much.
3: Big thanks to Heather and the PVA for adding to this important conversation around travel. And to further discussion, we're going to jump right into a conversation we had with Claire Durrett from Team Gleason about uh, traveling during the pandemic. We're excited to be on the line with Claire Durrett uh, with Team Gleason, where she is their strategic advisor for advocacy, legislation and communications. Thanks for being with us today, Claire.
5: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
3: We're so excited to talk to you. And as you know, the focus of our episode this week is travel, uh, which is always going to be more of an endeavor for someone living with ALS because of the challenges the disease presents. But during a pandemic, uh, there are even more layers to consider. Let's start with uh, asking you what sort of questions, Claire, around travel are you hearing from the ALS community?
5: That's a great question. Um, As you know, Team Gleason participates in adventure travel for people with ALS. And Mm -hmm. and those programs were suspended uh, when the quarantine began with COVID. We obviously still get a lot of questions around, when will you begin allowing us to uh, participate in in some of the adventures? Um, We've been able to help a few people and I, I think largely travel has been suspended within individuals and their families because mm-hmm. of safety measures. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not something that we're hearing a lot about, but we are noticing that there's a little uptick on people wanting to get away and get to weddings and uh, see their families because it's been a long time. So
3: sure. you
5: know, uh, within all of that, there are all of the questions that, that you would guess would come along with, what do I do about flying? Renting an RV, traveling by car, where do I get a, a rental house that has accessible ramps, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Well, you, Claire, you mentioned that uh, you're starting to see an uptick in in thinking about travel and, and it's something that, that we're seeing as vaccines roll out and as uh, you know spring turns into summer it's a conversation that's going to be ongoing and of course the CDC continues to issue guidance around mask wearing and I know the the administration has now put out uh, kind of strengthened some federal requirements around mask wearing particularly uh, for purposes of our conversation around air travel plane travel any type of public transportation so what does someone with ALS need to know about mask mandates and and what that means for them as they they start thinking about their travel plans?
5: Another great question. Um, there are a couple of layers to it. First of all, uh, masks are required for everyone who's going to be flying. Having said that, people with disabilities or legitimate disabilities are exempt from that, uh, particularly people with ALS who might need to use their facial expressions or someone who requires suction or a BiPAP or any sorts a sort of respiratory aids. What they would have to do is get a permission from their physician and also a letter. Um, they need to contact the airline. And our experience is, you would need to contact the airline multiple times to remind them because they may not all communicate with each other. So they would need to be exempted from wearing a mask um, that doesn't prevent their caregivers or anybody in their care team from from wearing a mask. But um, there, it just there lies some communication issues within the airlines we know exist overall, um, because their are big. There are a lot of people. So if you speak to somebody on the phone and you're exempted from wearing a mask or, or you uh, let them know that you will be exempted and you have a letter from your doctor, you then need to have a negative COVID test three days before your flight. And you'll have to have that paperwork as well. So all of that to go along with, you know, not being able to wear a mask, but having your your family caregivers uh, wearing masks and then going through all of the steps that it takes to get on a plane. Um, sure. That's probably what folks need to know.
3: Yeah, air air travel is, it's a tricky subject because policies can vary from airline to airline. We know that American Airlines made headlines uh, near the end of the year uh, around weight restrictions for, pol- for power chairs uh, and because uh, things can vary from airline to airline, what advice do you offer to people about preparing uh, for air travel? Is it best to just connect with your airline in advance as, as much as you can?
5: Yeah. Over-communicate. Um, really over-communicate with every airline. When you make your, you know, even in the very beginning, when you're making mm-hmm. your ticket, you need to communicate with them and let them know that you'll be traveling with somebody with a wheelchair, whatever level that is. Um, they need to, to relay that to the people on the ground and at the airport. And most airports have concierge services where they will meet you at the gate and and get you through there. Um, just really over communicating is what we can't advise anymore because as much as even Steve Gleason communicates with his care team, almost every time we get a, a different person who doesn't get the message and sure. you know, we have to go through all those steps.
1: And of course, Claire, that the trip isn't over once you get on the airplane or whatever your mode of transportation is what advice do you encounter or, or, or what, what questions you encounter and advice you, you find yourself giving to folks once they get to their destination? Uh, the, the, the trip at that point has just begun. What are some of the challenges that, that can be uh, kind of thought out in advance uh, once you get to your destination?
5: Yeah, thinking specifically on airline travel. Um, again, preparation. If you are traveling to another city where you're not fully um, engage with that city if you don't have a family member there, making sure that you have a, a wheelchair rental available to you, or if you're only traveling with one caregiver and you have to get a rental, how are you gonna get to the rental agency to get the wheelchair van? Um, there are a lot of things to consider with each airport when you're doing that. Um, also, you know, checking in advance what respiratory aid you might need if your suction machine breaks or if you need a shower chair, what rental agencies are there, what ALS association chapter is there, do they have a loan closet? Just making contact with those folks to let them know that you're coming to that town and you may need some help. Um, It's just, again, just a lot of preparation.
3: Preparation and communication always key. Shifting a bit to the legislative side, Claire, because I know that's something you're involved with. Are there things, is there upcoming legislation Our advocacy efforts that are happening around accessibility and travel that you're aware of?
5: I'm not aware of anything specific to travel. I know the airlines have been speaking with each other um, prior to COVID, that they were speaking in terms of how do they all have the same policies and procedures. Hmm. And I know airports were involved in those conversations around how do they make this more streamlined for all people with disabilities, not just people with ALS. Those were ongoing. Before the pandemic. So, hopefully, we'll be able to pick up those conversations again. There's something that's been popping up a lot, particularly since uh, the pandemic, is RV travel and how do folks reach out to these RV rentals and a lot of the ride sharing programs. Um, They're out there. Uh, You know, we we advised people that they weren't, (laughs) and we found out that there were. Mm. So, there's a lot of research that goes into it and looking into finding the, the correct. Or making sure that it's a safe vehicle, but there are some RVs out there that provide for people with wheelchairs and even have wheelchair lifts. So I I know a lot of folks have been doing that during the pandemic, and it's really interesting that they could hit the road and and do their own thing as a family. Um, It was pretty inspiring, but I wish there were a lot more of those.
3: Yeah, road trips uh, can be a nice alternative to air travel, particularly during the pandemic. And it's encouraging to hear that families are considering that an option and hopefully they're able to find uh, those accessible options that you just alluded to. Thank you again so much for your time today, Claire. We really appreciate everything that you do and that Team Gleason does. And and, uh, you brought some excellent insight into this conversation about travel.
5: No, thanks for the opportunity. We're looking forward to getting people in the ALS community back out into the world.
3: You bet.
1: Well, Mike, appreciate the insight that Claire Durrett over at Team Gleason was able to give on this topic. Our final voice that we'll be hearing from today is that of Miriam Elgis-Goldman. Miriam uh, recently kicked off a new web platform for folks traveling who have some mobility challenges uh, and really trying to catch meet match them up uh, with travel that is going to be accessible. So let's hear from Miriam now.
3: We're happy to be joined today by Miriam Algis-Goldman, co-founder and CEO of Accessible Go. Thanks for being with us on Connecting ALS, Miriam.
6: Thank you. Wonderful to be here.
3: So we're talking about travel on this week's show. And for anyone who is unfamiliar with your site, it's doing some really cool things. Can you explain what is Accessible Go?
6: Sure. So Accessible Go is a travel platform for people with disabilities offering bookings, reviews, and community And what we're doing that's really unique is we're not just a booking site. This isn't just book and leave. This is really a community for people to come together and really have positive travel experiences and to really be prepared with all of the information you need in advance. A lot of the problems that people with disabilities face when they travel are specifically related to information. And so part of what we're doing is actually gathering accessibility data on hotels across the U.S., and often a really unique booking experience, which I can, I'm happy to explain.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah. So uh, I want to unpack some of those challenges that you, you mentioned. I guess, what was the impetus for the platform and what are the main challenges that you see? You talked about accessibility for, you know, kind of hotel lodging spaces, um, but um, unpack that a little bit and talk about the challenges that you're set up to address.
6: Sure, sure. So the impetus for really launching this whole uh, site was my mother. She had multiple sclerosis, and she was a wheelchair user. Unfortunately, she hmm. passed away a number of years ago. But as a kid, you know, growing up with a parent who used a wheelchair, it really shaped how I looked at the world. So you know, everything we did had to be accessible. Anything we wanted to do, you know, was all framed by that, you know, um, just that perspective. And I always wanted to do something that would make a really big difference. And when I had this idea for Accessible Go, which emerged out of a conversation, actually, um, I was like, wow, this is going to be huge. It's going to help a lot of people. And we have to do this. And so six months later, we created the company and then we eventually launched the platform. So basically, the way that we view problems with travel for people with disabilities, it's all revolving around information. Like, for example, usually uh, someone will get information that's wrong. That's the primary problem. The classic example is somebody showing up at their hotel and they get uh, completely the wrong room or the room just they claim it's successful and it's totally not. Sure. Um, The second problem is that you can't get the information you want in advance. Let's say you want to go to like an amusement park and you have no idea how big it is, how far apart the items that are of interest to you. And it's a real struggle. And the third problem was that until now, there was nowhere for the community to really come together and share information for good or for bad about travel. So at the moment, we are focused on hotels. That's often the anchor for the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, our intention is really to take the whole travel journey end to end between the attractions, the ground transportation and you know hotels, for example, and to really solve the pain points in each area. But in terms of hotels, what we're doing that's so unique is that, as I mentioned, we're gathering accessibility data on the hotels. So we, we can tell you, do they have a roll in shower? Do they have a step-free entrance? Do they have a hearing system? Um, all those details that can make or break your trip. So that's Mm -hmm. number one is the data, which is huge because then you can filter for the exact features that you need uh, at a completely different level because today in the travel world, accessibility information is really chaotic and it's a big mess. So we're trying to sort that out and kind of standardize the data in a way that is actionable. We've covered 5,000 hotels in America so far and we're on target. Yeah. (laughs) We're on target in the next uh, 18 months to cover half the hotels in America. So, Really, what what were the challenges that people often face when they're traveling? I probably would say the the number one problem is they get information that's wrong, like I said. But with that, people show up at the property and the room that they booked is given away. And that is so frustrating. Let's say you book with one Mm. of the big travel sites, you book an accessible room, you think you're all set. And you show up, and they say, "Sorry, it's not available." And you, you know, it's eleven o'clock at night. You just got off a plane, and then you're stuck because you can't bathe, you can't use the toilet. You know, all all the things that you right. know with an accessible room, you're totally stuck. And that's that's huge. That that breaks that ruins your whole trip. And so, what we're doing is, we have a system at Accessible Go where once a booking is completed in the system. Like you book like any other travel site, you know, you filter for what you want, you book the hotel, you specify the specific requests that you need, let's say a roll and shower, an ADA tub, a low floor room, whatever your specific accessibility requirements are. Once the booking is in the system, our customer service representative contacts the property, confirms that what you actually booked, you're going to get and sends mm-hmm. you a confirmation email. It takes us five minutes, but it's, it's a game changer because- sure. When, when somebody shows up at a property and, and their whole trip is ruined, we understand that. We know the pain points of somebody with a disability that, you know, you arrive and you're so upset because now, you know, you're going to be at this hotel for a week and you can't bathe. So what we're doing is really unprecedented. You know, this confirmation system and this idea that there's this trust and confidence in our platform. You know, usually people book where they find the best deal, but when it comes yeah. to accessible go, yes, our rates are competitive, but we're about the trust and confidence in the community.
3: Well, and it must give folks a real peace of mind and uh, confidence is key, like you said, knowing that uh, the room they're expecting is going to be there when they arrive. I also saw on the site that you offer uh, helpful tips like searching by a hospital. So if if that's a point in your journey, folks can do that and find accessible options nearby. Without giving any way of your, your uh, secret sauce, Miriam, did you... Did you do user focus groups or kind of gather data leading up to the launch that would enable you to offer those sort of insights?
6: Yeah, definitely, a hundred percent. Because you know we had all these assumptions when we launched about what people wanted, and it was so interesting to see how it played out. So for sure, we did you know focus groups and we interviewed you know uh, different user like the different types of users who'd be using the platform, mm-hmm. and. Um, so we and then we launched, and it was very interesting. We had like fifty thousand people uh, join in a few months, which was amazing, just to see that mm. validation that yes, we're excited about it, and yes, everyone else is too, not just us. <laughs> um, but you know, what what was so interesting also was some of the assumptions we made were were incorrect. Like we assumed that people were going to do these big vacations to like Orlando and Vegas, like the top tourist spots in the nation. And what we found, like you just mentioned about the hospitals, was that people were using the platform to either for medical visits or to visit friends and family. Uh, Mm -hmm. They weren't going to the big cities. And we had built the whole platform around, you know, uh, like top 10 attractions that are accessible in uh, San Diego or, you know, the big places. So it was very interesting. So we quickly shifted uh, to gather data on the smaller cities that we saw people were visiting, uh, you know, for personal reasons and not for like big, splashy vacations.
1: Sure. So, Miriam, with all that in mind and and the challenges that you're setting out to try and address, uh, for someone listening at home who's thinking about taking a trip, uh, maybe they need to take a trip or, um, you know, it's a a trip for leisure, you know, as, as, as travel starts to open back up, what's the best piece of advice or the first piece of advice you would give that person?
6: I would say really being prepared and knowing what is important to you. So for example, let's say you want to go on a, a a regional trip, which, you know, these days with COVID, most people are doing like either a staycation or a local trip within the region, you know, probably staying at a hotel, you know, just to get away per se, but something that's within driving distance. So I would say being prepared, like, you know, Obviously, booking with a site like ours will give you peace of mind that you're actually going to get what you booked, and you can filter for the exact requirements that you need. But you know, to be prepared and say, okay, um, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where um, there can be so many surprises that it's, it could ruin my trip. Obviously, you can't control everything, but you can do the best you can to eliminate the surprises uh, as best as possible, and to put things uh, in the framework that you know you'll have a, a positive travel experience. So I would say, you know, it sounds um, trite but you know being prepared i think uh when you have a disability is is critical
3: yeah that's good advice Uh, before we let you go can and you mentioned you know adding uh, so many more hotels and destinations can you just tell us a little bit about what's next for accessible go
6: Sure. We just did a big survey to our user base, actually, about what people want next. And the number one thing that came up was actually attractions. People were saying that, you know, uh, having accessibility information for attractions and just the capability to book that alongside their hotel, basically the complete package of, you know, accessible travel, the the attraction, the hotel and everything, that's what we're going to be expanding next. So. More to come.
3: <laughs> yeah.
6: You know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the key parts of Accessible Go is the community. So, for example, we have a forum where travelers introduce themselves. They can talk about what kind of disability they have, what needs they have, and connect with fellow travelers, you know, like-minded and like-needing travelers about, you know, how to improve travel for all. And that's so critical because, like I said, we're not just another booking site. This is a community of travelers coming together to, you know, really share their information and... Uh, really just, have, just so everybody can have a positive travel experience
3: Hmm. Oh, that's great it's a wonderful description thank you thanks so much for your time Miriam uh, and we'll be sure to link to accessible go in our show notes so folks can check out the site if they haven't already we really appreciate your insight on to traveling with a disability today
6: thank you thank you for the opportunity to be on the show and uh, I really appreciate it <laughs> Jeremy, Heather, Claire, and Miriam,
2: thank you all so much. That's fantastic information for our listeners to consider if and when they plan out their own travels. And as we still navigate through COVID and the additional challenges it presents to the ALS community, this information continues to be timely and helpful.
1: It does. And we'll be sure to share a link in the show notes to the CDC's COVID page and its recommendations on traveling during the pandemic. A quick show note, the ALS Association's Focus Program is out with a new survey. Jessica, I don't know if you heard the big news.
2: I did hear about this. This is really exciting. This is one of my favorite programs, actually. This summer survey has launched, and it is asking around telehealth needs of those living with ALS and their families and caregivers. So certainly encourage everybody to go and visit the link in the show notes and access that survey if you are living with ALS or you are a family member or caregiver of someone with ALS. This information, of course, the data is collected and shared free of charge with the entire ALS community. But please know that it is de-identified so your privacy is protected.
1: Privacy is so important in the world of survey research, but yeah, telehealth is such a big topic. It's one we've discussed many times here on Connecting ALS and will continue to do so as the ALS Association and advocates across the country fight to make sure that expanded access to telehealth is a permanent part of our healthcare delivery future that's going to do it for this week's episode. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, uh, please rate the show and leave a review. It is a great way for us to find even more ears to tune in and listen. This week's episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.